Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Company's podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each episode showcases one of Davy's certified arborists sharing advice with everyone about caring for your trees and landscapes. We'll talk about everything from introduced pests, seasonal tree care, deer damage, how to make your trees thrive, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. We're joined this week by Chelsea Abbott. She's a technical advisor with the Davy Institute out of Chicago. And I can't wait to talk about small flowering trees. I'm going to pick your brain about some of your favorites. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. First off, when you say small, what does that mean when we're talking trees? Well, I mean, uh, that's going to be really dependent on each individual person. (laughs) You know, some people might think shrubs as a small tree. Um, so something under 10 feet, and then some people might think anything under 30 feet is small. Uh, so when you're thinking small flowering trees, just start off with, with tell me a couple of your favorites in the landscape. Okay, so I mean, I have quite a few um, that I, I tend to like to recommend, um, but we have to be careful because a lot of flowering trees have a lot of insect and disease issues. So we're going to have to look at it from through that lens too. So that's why I select the ones that I did is because they typically don't have lots of disease or insect problems. Um, Cause I, I, you know, I do love a great cherry, uh, but they have a really bad disease called black knot that gets on them. So I have to kind of kick them off my list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's just start right there because lots of people have cherries in their, uh, landscape. And we do hear a lot about that black knot. So I guess the first thing is, like you say, when you're recommending a tree, even though a cherry is beautiful, it can be a challenge to grow. Yes, yes. So that's why, uh, you know, I would recommend things like uh, Kusa dogwood, because it doesn't get the diseases that say a flowering uh, dogwood would, even though they're both dogwoods, one of them gets a pretty bad disease. So you have to consider that. Um, All right, I want to I want to stop you right there with oh, yeah. Kusa dogwoods. <laughs> oh, no. I love Kusa dogwoods. Uh, but tell me, have you had good luck with the variegated ones in the north? No, not so much. Um, you know, a lot of the variegated uh, sort of ornamentals, they tend to dry out. Like the leaves get a little crispy, um, especially with sort of the droughts that we've been having. So I haven't seen them much of where I'm at. Um, and if I do see them, they don't look as nice as just, you know, the normal, uh, not the normal ones, but the not variegated Kusa dogwoods. So let's just talk, explain to people what a Kusa dogwood is, because they might be thinking of our native dogwood. And this is a completely different plant. It blooms, it blooms at a different time and the flowers look a little bit differently, but it has some other positives too. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the main, one of the also big difference I would say is the Kusa dogwood has that beautiful raspberry looking fruit. So you get some nice sort of late summer fall action as well, which sometimes you need to consider with your ornamental trees. Uh, But one of the main differences between like uh, just your generic flowering dogwood and Kusa dogwood is that Kusa dogwood is resistant to a fungal pathogen that could really cause a lot of cankers. And there's not really much we can do about it other than prune it back. And just like with the cherry, you know, it's Flowering dogwoods are beautiful, but if you have to constantly be keeping up the management and pruning back the limbs, then you're pruning back your flowers. So 
you want the flowers on the tree. So you want something that can retain them. What else is on your list? Um, so I, re uh, it's, you know, it's interesting because I also love a catalpa tree, but that's not, that's not, that's not a small tree at all. Um, I, I know it's not, I know it's not small, but it, it's, it's in a way it's kind of an unusual tree. You know, I, I had one in my backyard growing up and just explain to people what they look like. And when you, when you say the seed pod, they'll know what it is. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, just as a full disclosure, catalpas are among my favorite tree of all time um, because they really look interesting no matter what time of the year you're looking at them. They have really uh, in, like sort of knobby bark that's very like large and ridged and they kind of get a sort of a interesting form to them, but they have these gigantic heart-shaped leaves They've got these big, beautiful bean pods that are, you know, can fall and ca cause some mess. But in the sort of in the middle of summer, they form these beautiful white orchid looking flowers that when they fall, the entire flower falls, not a petal. So you get all these orchids just essentially dotting the landscape below. And I think it's just it's the most dramatic tree, but it is really beautiful. <laughs> I'm wondering, is it one you grew up with or one that you discovered when you got into trees? Uh, it was actually one when I'm, uh, so I'm actually originally from Ontario up in Canada. Um, and there's a lot there that kind of line the highways, to be honest. So they're kind of like a weird, almost like weed tree. Um, and so they didn't get a lot of love from me growing up because most people found them to be a nuisance. And then when I moved to Chicago, I happened to be walking through um, Oz Park where there's this catalpa grove. And I just had to happen to hit it right at the time when those orchids were falling down. And it was just a magical moment. I was like, I didn't know these trees were like so beautiful. So it's something I came to late in the game. Chelsea, we only got to our second tree and we're already to a big one. I thought it would take at least five trees to kill <laughs> this bigger. No, uh, go big or go home. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, what else would you recommend uh, when we're talking small flowering trees? And then I have a lot of other questions for you about about planting and, and caring for them. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, another one that I'll recommend is the Japanese lilac. Um, it's very beautiful fluorescence. It almost looks like feathers and it's, it blooms a little bit later than your typical ornamental. So you can kind of get that if you want to stagger your bloom times with your tree. Uh, and then some people don't prefer the smell. I think it smells a little bit like honey. It's quite sweet. Um, so for me, it's quite pleasant, uh, although for some people it can kind of, you know, uh, be maybe too perfumey. Um, another one that's a really cool kind of tree is a partridge pea. Uh, if you can get it in a grafted form, you can actually have it where it sits up a little bit higher. And that just has a really cool look to it just because it's just very different. You don't see them very often. And I tend to go for some of those trees that I would say are not overly planted because then you have a better chance of not having a insect or disease come through and, uh, you know, wipe them out. So tell me about that tree because I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So, I mean, a part, they're not super common. Um, a partridge pea typically is more of a shrub, but like a lot of other ornamental, actually almost most ornamental flowering trees, they, they can graft them so that you can sort of lift them up off the ground a little bit. And grafting is essentially where you take one species grafted with another species of the same kind. So it's just cultivars essentially. Uh, so you can actually graft it so that it comes up and then it weeps down. Uh, it has these beautiful yellow flowers and um, 
the leaves, if you're familiar with a honey locust or a black locust, mm -hmm. very similar look of the leaves, but it's much smaller. And it's just a really, it's kind of like a conversation plant, I like to call it, because most people will pass it and be, they'll ask you, what is that? Um, yeah, in, in the winter, it looks a little bit knobby and Halloween-y, but it really has some nice foliage and uh, um, um, some nice flowers to it. Okay, now, most people hate Rose of Sharon, okay? But uh, from your standpoint, if, if I found one that was sterile and pretty, can I get away with it from your standpoint of, of being a, a tree person? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't have any issue with Rose of Sharon. Um, they can look a little interesting in the winter. Uh, and I, I like that visual interest that kind of lasts throughout the year. Um, it might be a little bit messy for some people. But um, as far as, you know, insect and disease issues, they don't really have much to go off of. And again, I usually come at it from that view because I want a plant that looks beautiful and doesn't require, you know, too much maintenance. Still needs a little bit to shape it, but it's it's not it's not going to get, you know, say apple scab or fire blight or some of these other problems. Well, you know, that kind of leads me to where I want to go next is, are there some other things out there that you see people planting a lot of that you oh, know yes. <laughs> that you know are going to be trouble for them <laughs> big time i mean we already mentioned cherries um you know plums unfortunately fall into that category as well same problem black knot uh crab apples crab apples are the big one you know they are gorgeous i love them they're just so beautiful but they get fungal diseases and bacterial diseases like you wouldn't imagine. And they just, they become so much work. So that beauty is dependent upon you applying, you know, chemicals in order to keep them healthy. Well, you know, I have a crab apple that I inherited when I moved into this house 22 years ago. And the guys from Davy actually had to save it because a pine yeah. tree, a pine tree fell on it. And they're, <laughs> just, and they're saying, this, they're just like, Come on, Doug. You know what a trouble this tree is. I said, I know, but it was here when I got here, and I can see yep. it right, right out the window when I'm doing the dishes and when it's blooming. So that they they were able to save it. it it's it's in about a second year of coming back, and it's starting mm -hmm. to get a little bit of form. But I know what you mean, especially yeah. especially on a wet year. It's gonna oh. lose. It's gonna lose its leaves. It's yes. Yeah, it's, it's gonna look terribly. Um, and then you know, a pear tree is also another one. Um, gets pretty bad bacterial blight. Um, and also some certain pears are invasive. So we have to watch out for that. Um, uh, and then the other one that I can think of that people plant a lot. Uh, so we went with our crab apple, then we went pear tree, um, magnolias. Also, they have insect issues, um, particularly now that we have sort of the hotter and drier summers that we're getting often that really boosts insect problems. And magnolia gets a scale that can be at times impossible to manage. Um, and it's not only bad for the tree, but the scale itself produces a honeydew, which can actually ruin, you know, anything below that tree. So it's like a sticky substance. Well, let's say, Chelsea, in my landscape, I have a crab apple, a cherry, a <laughs> magnolia. I guess the Rosa Sharon's the only thing that you, you've got. You've got the you've got the trifecta of our our no no plants. <laughs> Is there anything else you were thinking of as an idea to to grow something a little different? 
Yeah, I mean, other than the insect and the disease, I think also, you know, having something different that other people don't, um, it really adds a variety of different types of texture to your landscape um, and kind of lets you sort of stand out. And a lot of times when I recommend these different types of flowering trees and shrubs, you know, people at first are hesitant because it's not something that they've frequently seen, but after we plant it, it becomes their favorite because the only place you can see it is your property. Um, it's not something you can just walk around your, you know, suburb and find your crab apples everywhere. <laughs> uh, anything else on your list before we start talking about planting and taking care of them? Um, you know, I'll have to give a shout out and this one is hundred percent a childhood plant um, is a hydrangea, uh, but a hydrangea that's been grafted to be a hydrangea tree. Um, I just, I just love them. I, the snowball flowers, you know, they're great for the bees. Um, you know, if a lot of other pollinators will visit and I just, you know, they can come in a variety of colors. I don't see them as often as I think I should. Um, but yeah, that's a cool one. And then I will say fringe tree as well. Those, that's another sort of out there one that I wish I saw more of. All right. I'm going to go back to the hydrangea. <laughs> what is your connection with the hydrangea tree? Um, that's a, it was a tree that was planted uh, in the front yard of my childhood home, and it was actually right next to our mulberry tree. Uh, and so <laughs> so we had kind of this, just so many bees and so many butterflies, and I, you could just sit there and just watch all the different pollinators. I think I saw a hummingbird at one point, or just hovering around. So yeah, as a kid, it was just gigantic flowers mixed with pollinators. It was very fun to watch. And tell me a little bit about a fringe tree, because that one, again, is one that's uh, definitely unusual for the landscape. But as you yes. said, you put a fringe tree in, boy. People will ask. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I so one of the things I love fringe trees, I, I think I've really only seen maybe three or four in my you know years of walking around properties. And like you said, whenever you see one, it's, you have to stop because the flowers, it's hard to describe. They're almost like um, they're not... They don't really have petals in the sense that you would think of them. They're almost more like little strings hanging down. But when it is in bloom, it's almost like a smoke uh, smoke tr uh, tree or smoke bush where it's almost like very feathery, but you can kind of see through. Um, so it's extremely delicate looking. Uh, the leaves themselves are really cool too. So when the blooms do, you know, sort of fall off, you still have a lot of visual interest. Um, and it's a smaller tree, so it fits in a lot of places um, that like a crab apple or a service berry might fit into. Oh, I just, I also just remembered another one, a red bud. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell me about red buds because early in the spring, we get lots of questions about what is that beautiful pink blooming tree. So tell everybody about a red bud. Absolutely. Okay. So red buds are super cool because the blooms are actually on the actual stems. Um, and so They'll coat the entire, uh, uh, it's almost like this trunk and the stems. Um, and the best part about a redbud, in my opinion, is one, the flowers are magenta. They are so bright, like insanely bright. But it is at that time of year where everything's still kind of dormant so early that it, when it rains, the redbud bark turns black and that magenta pops even more. Like it's unbelievable in some senses. And I know... It's, it's one of the ones that I will recommend, but I'm hesitant to because it is starting to get planted a little bit too much that when you plant something that's becoming a monoculture, you have to watch out for a disease or insect, which I haven't had any so far, but
But just like with anything, you kind of watch, you know, more and more of it getting planted, you get a little nervous because you're like, oh, something could come through. And it depends on what part of the country you're in. But a lot of times when you're driving around certain parts of the country during red bud season, I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. uh, there are more than there should be. But you did, open, you did open the door to one of the tree I have to ask about. And it's not a small tree. The mulberry. <laughs> yes, mulberry. And, you know, this is another one that's, you know, there's a childhood connection. So I, I love mulberry trees, but they are, they're more considered to be weedy trees. They, you know, create a little bit of a mess um, when those berries fall. Uh, they're, they are interesting, I think, mostly because you can't really kill them. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of these quote unquote weedy trees like catalpas and mulberries, you know, they're, they get that name because they really could grow in any kind of situation, but it, the look is not for everybody. That's for sure. They do have a bit of a messy look to them. So they're not as manicured as some of the other flowering plants that we're talking about. So we're moving into, you know, a spring planting season. You know, I've always been taught that you plant your trees in the fall, but you can't always do it that way. You know, mm -hmm. you get some in in the fall, spring comes and you want to add something to the landscape. Talk a little bit about, is there anything special we should be doing once we get to the, a season where we can start digging? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the fall or the spring, um, it is generally accepted that fall is better, but it's not that spring is terrible. Um, you know, you can still plant uh anything in the spring, you just have to be a little bit more cautious about freezes right after planting and then the drought that could follow with the summer. So, I mean, with any plant, not even just flowering trees, if you're going to put it into the landscape, the main thing is really trying to make sure that it recovers from the shock of being planted. Because uh, lots of trees, they'll actually lose about 90% of the root system when they move from the nursery into your landscape. So water is key. And be careful, don't overwater it, but making sure that soil is moist, not oversaturated or sopping is perfect. Um, you have to baby a tree for about three years when you plant it. Three years. Yeah. Three to five, depending on how big the tree is when you put it in. Let's talk a little bit about watering. I did do some spring planting last year, and uh, that was a tough year to do it because in the east, we had terrible heat and drought. And I was out there once a week watering those young trees. And how do I, you know, how do I quantify how much water I need for a tree? I, I know how much I need on a tomato plant, but I often don't know on a tree. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, one of the big rules is about an inch or so a week. And if you don't know how much your uh, landscape is getting, put out a pie tin, mark an inch, water as you normally would if whether it's sprinklers or irrigation drip line whatever it might be and see how long you need to water to get that inch um, the other thing i would recommend is using slow drip systems not a you know full blast hose uh, you're going to want to see the water infiltrate downwards you don't want to see any kind of pooling and then running off because if it's running off horizontally the roots aren't going to get it uh, and there are some bags that you can put along the tree. Uh, I'm much bigger fan of just a soaker hose, just kind of coiled around the base, or not around the base, sorry, under the, the drip line of the uh, tree. Um, and that's just going to really ensure that you're fully saturating the soil, but not oversaturating it, because you don't want to have water pooling 
and standing because the roots are just essentially going to get rotten if you do that. And then let's talk a little bit about mulching. Uh, every time I talk to anybody who's a tree expert and the word volcano mulch comes up, uh, <laughs> they, they coil back angry. in fear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So mulch is 100% the best thing you can do for your tree if done correctly. Um, you know, you're going to want a two to four inch layer under the drip line, uh, keeping it away from the base of the tree. You're not wanting it to touch the bark at all. And if, if so, even just a little bit, that's okay, but do not pile it up. That'll just incite rot, uh, because of just the excess moisture, you're, cre you're creating a conducive environment for fungal pathogens, essentially. So you're saying, hey, fungi, I've created this beautiful home for you, and I've made your um, you know, meal a little bit softer, so go at it. Um, so yeah, we really want to keep the mulch away from the trunk, but definitely mulch when you have a new tree. They will thank you for it. So let's explain drip line. You know, pretty easy to understand, but a lot of times when I say that term, drip line, it does confuse people. So just explain where that mulch is. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you think about a tree in your head, you know, just draw a tree, um, you got your little stick and then usually people will draw kind of like a cloud above it. That's then they'll color that green. So when you look at that green canopy, um, the drip line is essentially think about when rain will rain on that tree and then it'll come off and it'll come off and sort of underneath uh, that canopy. And that's what the drip line is, is really anything underneath the canopy or the branches of the tree. Uh, you know, you're you want to go out to the drip line just because we're essentially trying to get as much moisture conservation as possible. Um, and what about fertilizing? A lot of people don't think about fertilizing trees, especially spring planted trees. What should we be doing as far as that's concerned? Yeah. I mean, so you can think about um, the soil has three sort of components. You've got your nutritional component, and that's going to be your fertilizer. Um, so that's something that you're probably going to want to at least talk to an arborist about when you put a new tree in. Um, and then you have stuff like the physical component, and that's going to be things like, is it compacted? And if you don't know what compaction is, essentially that's when the soil gets squished down, so there's no water, there's no air. Um, and so in that case, mulch is really great for compaction over time. And then the third one is going to be a biological component. Um, which is going to be the microbes that live in the soil. And if you have compacted soil or if you have super dry soil or soil that maybe doesn't have a lot of organic matter, then you don't have that component. So fertilizer is part of a great soil program, but I will give it a caveat. It's not the only thing you should be doing for a tree. So when we plant a tree, fertilizer is usually going to be one of the tools that we can use. Things like mulch and compost and watering, these are going to be our other toolboxes. So yeah, I would say you can fertilize uh, as long as you're doing other things as well. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your job. What does that mean, technical advisor with the Davy Institute? Tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. So um, as a tech, it sounds like I'm in IT, but I'm not. Um, I, you know, I've had a petition going to change it to scientific advisor. I think it's a little bit more accurate. But essentially what it means is um, I am sort of the go-to consultant for Davy arborists if they are unfamiliar with what's going on with a tree or a property. My background is in plant pathology, which is in tree diseases, but over time I've had to become a bit of a generalist. So I know about tree diseases, tree and shrub and turf diseases, you know, insects, soil problems, kind of like the whole gambit. And I'm uh, like a diagnostician. So 
when they run into something as an arborist that maybe they haven't seen before, they call me and I come in with advice on how to diagnose it and how to manage it. And there are some other aspects to the job, but I would say that that's the main core of what I do. And how is it that this is the right job for you? (laughs) Well, I love teaching um, and I love helping trees. So it's kind of the marriage between the two because I get to teach clients and arborists about trees, tree problems. Um, But then I also get to practice my actual (laughs) plant pathology, which I think a lot of people can't say. You know, I went to school for this and now I'm actually doing it every day, which is very nice. All right, Chelsea, great stuff. Uh, Thanks for that great list of trees. Uh, Very much appreciated. And since I grew up with a catalpa tree, I think I'm going to have to put one in too. Good. I I 100% endorse that. (laughs) All right. Nice to talk to you. All right. Nice talking to you too. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Next week begins our month-long celebration of Arbor Day with some great stories and fun interviews. And we're launching the Davy Planting Project. We'll have some free seeds for you. Might have to get in on that deal. Remember, on the Talking Trees podcast, we know the trees are the answer.